0: Welcome to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka and it's May the 11th, 2020. While it may feel to us like we have been living with the COVID-19 pandemic for a lifetime now, can you believe it's only been a couple of months? Mm-hmm. However, our knowledge of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the disease that it causes is rapidly changing, sometimes almost daily. With us today to discuss this is Dr. Greg Poland. He's an infectious disease expert and virologist, and we're calling today's episode, Changing Virus, Changing Knowledge. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Poland.
1: Yeah, My pleasure.
0: Well, I'm excited to hear about the things that you have to share with us today. We have kind of a hodgepodge of topics to go through, so it should be kind of fun for us today.
1: Well, you know, I think uh, what's on everybody's mind is the report from uh, late last week of how the virus is mutating. Now, we have to remember that this is an RNA virus and all RNA viruses mutate. So that by itself is not a surprise. It's not uh, mutating any rapidly, more rapidly than we would expect. Uh, In fact, it's rather slow mutation, consistent with what we know about uh, human beta coronaviruses. I think what, what raised some concern is that there have been about 14 mutations identified in that spike protein, the S protein that we now all know about. The question is, what's the clinical significance of those mutations? I guess one thing we could say is that the mutations seemed to make the virus more fit, meaning that it was easier to transmit because the evidence we have for that is in the beginning, while it only formed about 29% of all of the viral strains in in Europe in February, uh, by March timeframe, it was all of the strains that they could identify. That doesn't mean it's better or worse, it just means that it's different. From, From my perspective as a vaccinologist and somebody interested in infectious diseases, the question you always have, and you really have to watch carefully for, are any of those mutations going to occur in a portion of the gene, of the viral gene, that would uh, diminish the effectiveness of antivirals or diminish the effectiveness of any of the vaccines that are being developed? Thus far, no, but we're gonna have to keep an eye out on that. I think the other thing that uh, is interesting is just uh, two days ago, a a good friend and colleague of mine in Hong Kong Uh, published in The Lancet, a paper that really shows some surprisingly good news. This was a study of 127 uh, people who had COVID-19, and they put about two-thirds of them on triple therapy. Kaletra, which is a combination of two uh, uh, antiviral drugs, commonly used in HIV, actually. Ribavirin, a general uh, antiviral and beta interferon, which most often is actually used in MS uh, treatment. And then the control group just got the calitra. And what they found was really surprising um, in terms of the time to alleviate symptoms. It went from eight days to four days. A hospital stay of almost 15 days down to nine days. Viral loads driven down to zero and dramatically decreased IL-6 loads. And IL-6 is one of those uh, uh, chemicals, cytokines, that cause so-called cytokine storm. So this is really good news. It needs to be replicated in in a larger set of patients, and they plan on that. But at least it's a bright spot in what's been a long slog, as you pointed out, Helena. We're 16 weeks into uh, understanding this virus, and, and look at the progress being made. It's really unprecedented in science.
0: That's really interesting, Greg. And one of the things that came to mind for me when you were talking about this um, particular combination of therapies, which wasn't something I was familiar with, is how in the world do we choose, knowing that all of these, um, uh, there's remdesivir that people talk about, there's um, plasma, um, and now you're talking about other drug therapies. How do um, providers in individual areas choose the right um, Treatment for their patients, and does it have something to do with the availability of the medications, or is that to making it too simple?
1: As usual, you put your finger right on the on the hot spot of what the issue is, and it's it's availability. Um, remdesivir is not available everywhere. Um, plasma therapy is not available everywhere yet. So I think clinicians, and rightly so, are using what's at their disposal now. Uh, one question is, why did they pick Kaletra and, and ribavirin? And the reason for it was that that had shown uh, benefit back in SARS in 2002 and 2003. So it was a natural for them uh, to investigate that. But um, I think what you're going to see, and there are some already, but you're going to see an increasing amount of clinical guidelines, which, as you know, we use as clinicians all of the time. Evidence-based guidelines to guide us and what 's the best thing to do in given different uh, clinical scenarios
0: well that 'll be good that 'll be very welcome I think, and comforting to people as well to know um, what they what the more definitive treatments are but like you 've said it 's moved so rapidly. One of the things that um, you know we all call this covid nineteen that 's kind of our casual phrase mm-hmm. for it, but I had read that it really isn 't appropriate to call this the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Is that because of what you said about the mutations?
1: Yeah, I I think, you know, it's it's a little bit, I mean, we do it out of simplicity, but it's a little bit naive to act as if it's one virus that is unchanging and has no concomitant uh, differences in how it presents clinically or how it might respond. What we're seeing we see it with all RNA viruses, is we begin to see a divergence. As this virus passages through more and more humans, it begins to accumulate mutations. And very likely, we'll start to see these sort into, you know, kind of uh, what we call clades or subtypes of the virus that may have different clinical effects. We don't know that yet, but that's what we're keeping a close eye on. The other thing that can happen above and beyond the mutations that we talked about is recombination events, where they can actually trade genetic material when, when two viruses infect one human. Now, this is what's important. I think, and we see pictures of this in other countries, we see patients kind of jammed in the hallways, jammed into wards, etc. and that's a thinking born of this is one virus and they have it when in reality, they may have varying or different subtypes of the virus that then have the opportunity to co-infect and create new types of viruses. So I think uh, one of the consequences of thinking of it as the virus is thinking that it's one thing when it could become more than one thing and we would want to try to prevent those recombination events.
0: That's really interesting. It brings to mind what we've always said about kind of using universal protection guidelines. Mm-hmm. So we don't. We kind of assume that everyone is um, susceptible and that we don't have all of the information that we need. And so I okay. think that what you just said really reiterates the, the need to sort of um, follow the rules and uh, mask and use PPE as directed.
1: And you know, when you look at some of the models and models are just that, they're not reality, they're, they're predictions of what could happen. But if you look at FEMA, for example, here in the U.S., and uh, some may have seen these models that were released last week, they're talking about, with the kind of premature openings that we're seeing, they're talking about 200,000 new cases a day and 3,000 new deaths a day all the way through the end of May. If we're not very careful and attendant to this, I mean, it's, it's human behavior, we're all tired of the social distancing and the interruptions in our life, but we do have to be wise. And uh, I've been a fan of saying it's not a light switch, it's a dimmer switch. Um, and, and that's a way to approach phasing in how to do this so that if there is any recurrence or jump or spike in these cases, we can detect it right away and then lock back down.
0: You know, some of the more interesting things that I've been reading, at least in the, um, the media, uh, recently have been about um, how this virus affects special populations. So at first, for instance, we'd heard, well, kids aren't really that much affected by it for some reason. Mm-hmm. But now there've been many reports of some very ill children with something that looks like, from what I've read, like Kawasaki disease. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, Kawasaki disease is a, typically a disease that you see in kids under the age of five. And it, it occurs for reasons we don't exactly occur, uh, understand other than it tends to occur when there are co-infections, viral infections. What's different about this is it's not occurring just in young children under, the fi- under five years of age. It's occurring in kids up to their teens. And in some cases, this has really been very serious disease with coronary, aneurys- coronary artery aneurysms abdominal pain such that they've been taken to surgery only to have nothing found, um, nausea, vomiting, shock, toxic shock-like uh, uh, symptomatology. And no one completely understands this. This is, and I think the right name for it is a, a, a typical Kawasaki with toxic shock features associated with it. So I think when you're uh, you know, a teenager and younger, And there's fever, there's abdominal pain, there's rash, there's anything suggesting um, lowered blood pressure, uh, like weakness or anything like that. That's a reason to get into your physician and to be evaluated, to look for this unusual symptomatology.
0: Is there there any new information, Greg, about um, the effects of um, COVID-19 in pregnancy?
1: Yeah, you know, early on, uh, the, the very few cases that had been identified, they really didn't identify much. Actually, uh, I'm, I'm a co-author, but at Mayo Clinic, we've now just finished, we're going to be submitting it, uh, I hope today, a meta-analysis of the uh, about 24 studies that we were able to identify that, that met our criteria involving a total of about 136 uh, women. And uh, we found some interesting things. One is that the preterm birth rate uh, was about 40%, which is somewhat surprising. We, we were able to identify uh, one mother that died, two that needed uh, ventilation, two-thirds of the neonates needed ICU uh, admission, uh, although only one died. And we've only been able to identify in the literature, uh, even though they've uh, cultivated amniotic fluid, blood, placenta, et cetera, only two or three infants that actually were positive. So what's happening is that the effect seems to be on premature birth, um, occasionally neonatal distress, but more so in the, in the women, a much higher preterm birth rate, a much higher rate of mechanical ventilation than, than you would otherwise expect. But I have to say, even with all that, overall they did pretty well and that's the surprising thing because uh, as an example pregnant women particularly in the last trimester of pregnancy who develop uh, influenza have a greatly elevated rate of icu admission mechanical ventilation uh, and all kinds of parameters of, of distress and toxicity not really seeing that with this which is a surprise and it may it may well the speculation is that it may well relate to the fact that pregnancy is a relative state of immunosuppression. And it may be that the balance of immunosuppression is not that the virus gets out of control, but that the immune response and the negative aspects of that clinically are mildly suppressed. So we're hopeful that that will continue to be the case and pregnant women will do well. Nonetheless, they're advised to take precautions
0: could be very frightening, yeah. um, I imagine, if you're, if you're pregnant at this time, yeah. and with so much uncertainty. Um, Greg, are there any other special populations that you'd like to update us on?
1: Um, I guess uh, a couple of other things. We talked very briefly about it. There was a study out of China showing uh, that men that had recovered um, for as long as now, they only went out about 16 days, but they could find PCR evidence of the virus in semen, raising the question, is there any possibility that this could be sexually transmitted. We don't, we don't have an answer to that question. The other thing is our colleagues in oncology have been doing a lot of good work and looking at the effect of COVID-19 infection in uh, people who have cancer. And in general, they've done pretty well with the exception of patients that have lung cancer, not surprising, and who have various types of blood cancer that prevents them from responding appropriately immunologically to fight off the infection. So again, some populations that need to be very careful and very wary of getting drawn into um, what we're certainly seeing, which is people thinking, well, this is over and I don't have to take precautions. That would be a very wrong way and dangerous way of thinking.
0: Greg, are there any other common viruses that are not sexually transmitted that are released in semen or involved in seminal fluid
1: yeah it's a a good point helena and i should have said that that finding that by pcr just tells you that at some point there was evidence of the virus having trans transited through the male reproductive system there are many viruses over a hundred in fact where you can find traces of the virus not necessarily the whole infectious virus just traces Of its genetic material, West Nile, Japanese encephalitis, uh, uh, lots of them that uh, that's the case. So it's not so much an alarming finding as an interesting scientific finding that now bears further investigation.
0: Greg, I'd now like to move on to one of my favorite topics, which is food. (laughs) I should preface this by saying that I do not do the grocery shopping in my home. My husband does all of that and cooks, I'm pretty lucky. Mm -hmm. But he has told me there's a real shortage of meats in the grocery store particularly chicken which is my favorite yeah. but we've seen here in the midwest several hot spots of virus outbreak described in um, meat packing plants some of them have been pork some otherwise and i'm wondering what is unique about this why is that happening
1: yeah you know you're you're very right about this this is a, a an area of concern and in, e- in essence it becomes a hot spot for further spread of infection Now, the the current state of what's happened is is exactly as you suggested in both chicken and pork processing plants, very high rates. I mean, sometimes in the 80% of, of workers have been infected, but remarkably asymptomatically so. You would expect that you would see higher rates as we do in the rest of the population, leading to the question in my mind is, Are we sure about the testing? Number one. Number two, is there something different? Perhaps it's different genetics by race or ethnicity uh, that we're seeing this. The reason they seem to be getting uh, infected at a greater rate is that in these packing plants, and I've been in uh, some that deal with uh, uh, poultry, is the, the workers are really jammed pretty close together in these long production lines. So it's not surprising at all that if one person got sick, you'd kind of see it go uh, right down the line. So I think a lot of work that needs to be done. uh, There's been some concern that uh, uh, for uh, a variety of reasons that the workers were encouraged to come to work anyway. Uh, I think that needs to probably be further fleshed out and investigated if that's the case. I I doubt it is, but uh, that's what you hear the media raising. Uh, and a lot to learn yet about uh, these, these individual areas. We've saw, we saw it with cruise ships. We've seen it in schools, seeing it in meatpacking plants. All of these seem to have in commonality, closeness of contact. But are there any other clues happening there? We don't know yet.
0: I know that Greg, we'd all love to hear a little update on what kind of work that you are doing on the virus in your lab and those that you're connected with.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, we're doing a lot of interesting work, uh, actually. We're just starting it, so I don't have any results uh, to, to say. But we're developing a neutralization assay. So this would actually tell you the level and kind of antibodies you have that directly kill or neutralize the virus. We're going to be working with a company that has developed a uh, ability to test antibodies in a little spot of blood on a piece of paper. Uh, So that that could make things a lot easier. And then the most important work that uh, we're doing are looking at host genetics. So why are some people so severely affected and others asymptomatic disease? And lastly, uh, the development of a vaccine. At at Mayo Clinic and, and our lab, we've developed some intellectual property that's been patented that we're using to develop a new platform. We don't have any vaccines like this currently, but a new platform that would make a vaccine that would be very cheap, could be stored indefinitely, and for which there wouldn't be any contraindications or allergic reactions. So uh, very early, perhaps too early to even talk about it, but it's a direction that we're going and that we're very hopeful for.
0: That sounds like a miracle that we would all just uh, be thrilled with. Yeah. look forward to hearing more about your research as, as things develop.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: Do you have anything else you'd like to share with us in particular today?
1: You know, I I think the thing, uh, we were talking a little bit about it right before, and I'll I'll look at the numbers here. When you look at Friday, there were 1,290,000 infections in the US. Now we're at almost 1,400,000. There were 76,000 deaths. Now we're up to 81,000 deaths, just in two or three days. I mention these not, not to be you know doomsday or anything, but to say that I really do think it's important that we intelligently, as a society, not base how we reopen on emotion, I'm tired of being socially distanced, but on science and on epidemiology and in understanding how we ramp up slowly, because very likely this fall, we're gonna have to ramp down again as this virus recirculates from the southern hemisphere. That's the best guess. So the idea behind doing this is, as we've talked about, flattening that curve. Many people will say, well, doesn't that just prolong the time that people could get infected? And the answer is yes, but deliberately so. As we have seen, think about somebody getting infected today compared to a month ago. Now we know something about triple drug therapy. Now we know something about remdesivir now we have plasma therapy, just in a month. So imagine if we can push this out another month or two or maybe even three, the value of that in preserving life and preventing people from being admitted to a hospital in an ICU. That's the power of of wearing a mask, of washing our hands and maintaining some semblance of social distancing. So I I mention it as an encouragement. It's working Let's not cut it off at the legs.
0: I think that's really good to hear because even here in Minnesota, uh, where I'm located, we've, um, you know, we hear so much about people just waiting for the next um, announcement from the governor that this could this be the week? Could this be the week? Which, um, wonderful if we can reopen some of those uh, businesses and services safely. But Mm -hmm. good things to keep in mind that this is going to need to be kind of a lifestyle for a Mm -hmm. period of time for us, that we're cautious and that we use uh, good. Um, hygiene and and masks and and PPE and things like that.
1: I think you're very right.
0: Well, thanks so much for being with us today, Dr. Greg Poland. Thank you, too, for listening in to Mayo Clinic Q&A. We look forward to connecting with you next time.
1: Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all the Mayo Clinic podcasts, Visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.